Hi, Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub, stepping in for Sean Spear to host this Hub Dialogue. Today we have an opportunity to talk with someone who I've kept going back to over the years to better understand Israel. What drives this country? How do its citizens think? And as the country reacts to the aftermath of the terrorist attacks of October 7, what is at stake for Israeli democracy, Israeli security, the future of a potential peace process with the Palestinian people? Well, Yossi Klein Halevi is my guest. He's a writer for the New York Times and Wall Street Journal, a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. And here's my conversation with him for you now. Yossi, I want to begin our conversation by having you help us understand the mood in Israel now, two months after these horrific terrorist attacks. Specifically, let's discuss uh, the funerals that are happening for IDF soldiers, because something important is occurring in Israel right now around these funerals. They've become not simply events of tragedy and intimacy for the families involved, they become, in a sense, national occasions. What's happening here and why? If you're asking about the soldiers, I think that is a good place to to understand where Israel's at today. Because in the past, military casualties were unbearable for Israeli society. Uh, everyone relates to a fallen soldier as if it's it's our own child. And we in in increasingly we've had a very uh, low tolerance for for military casualties and uh, very very different from it, the early years in israel which were much more stoic and what's happened since the massacre is that we've in some ways returned to that spirit of stoicism and realized we have no choice and I think that that what what I what I feel at these funerals is that there's a sense of purpose that Israelis feel, which we hesitated to say until October seventh, which is that when a soldier falls in defense of the country, it has meaning. That kind of rhetoric became more and more thin over the years. But it's back in a very robust way. And you have to understand how Israelis experienced October 7th. It wasn't only the largest massacre of Israeli civilians in, in the country's history. It was something much deeper than that. These were Israeli citizens who died in a condition of helplessness, many of them with their hands bound behind their backs, burned alive, mutilated, raped. And it's the condition of helplessness that is so deeply offensive to the Israeli ethos. Because what, what Zionism promised the Jewish people was that it would create a safe refuge. And Israel today is the most dangerous country in the world to be a Jew. There, there is rising anti-Semitism all over the world. That's certainly true. But nowhere else in the world could one conceive of 1,200 Jews being butchered and dismembered, and another 240 Jews kidnapped and held for ransom. That happened only here. And so 
if you want to understand something of the determination of Israeli society in fighting this war and and, and the determination to bring Hamas down, which is, is a consensus from left to center to right. And, and again, we haven't seen this kind of unanimity in Israel in decades. You have to understand how deeply offensive, and more, it's more than offensive, it's an assault on our, on our very rationale for existence. And so that also explains why the funerals of soldiers are more bearable now, because these are our Israelis who are dying with a, with a gun in their hands. They're not dying help in a state of helplessness. And what is so unbearable for the Israeli psyche is the thought that, that we are in some ways back in the Jewish past. And that's one of the main goals of this war is to ensure that the devastating message of October 7th is undone and the image of the Jew as victim is erased. So well said, uh, so much to unpack with you there. Let me just stick with the funerals for a moment longer because I know you've attended these, you've been with colleagues and others who've lost sons and daughters uh, in this war. What I understand, from listening to you and from what I can see in Israeli media is the scale, the size of these funerals. There's something much more than simply the tragedy, the grief of a family. These have become national events. I believe you'll see there was one funeral in, I think it was Tel Aviv, that over 30,000 people showed up to just in the matter of a few hours. Uh, maybe tell that story because it's such a powerful one. Well, uh, Israelis tend to to react in in an especially uh, generous way when what we call a lone soldier who doesn't have family here, who comes from abroad, immigrates to Israel, volunteers for the army, and there are lots of lots of young people in 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 the army. And so a lone soldier died. Uh, it was a, uh, a young woman, and she had no family in Israel. And so thousands of Israelis showed up as her extended family to, uh, to, to, embrace, to embrace her, her sacrifice, and her family, who, who of course came from, from the States. And the sense that uh, you're never alone here. And that's that's fundamental to the Israeli experience. Yeah. Um, and the expressions of grief, you mentioned, you know, the early stoicism of the first kind of leaders and the culture of Israel's founding. While you've seen that kind of return of that, it, it has a different texture, doesn't it, this time, Yossi? There's... Yes, yes. Soldiers are crying together at these funerals. People are expressing grief and emotion publicly in a way that it's different. What, what's going on here? Yeah, the, uh, the old Israel, the Israel, as you say, of the founders, socialist, austere Israel represented by the communal kibbutz, the ethos then was that it betrays weakness to cry at 
at military funerals. And it was considered a kind of scandal when soldiers, if soldiers would dare to cry. And today, this is such a different Israel. It's so much more of a, um, of a humane Israel. I know that that's not necessarily the image that Israel has in parts of, of world opinion, but uh, this is an Israel that, um, that allows people to grieve publicly. It's an Israel that embraces grief. And I, I was at a funeral where the commander of the fallen soldier was crying. His voice was breaking. And you would have never heard that in the old Israel. It was always, we have to be strong. And that's not the message now. In the early days of the state, I think there was a great deal of anxiety among Jews about whether Zionism really would succeed in creating a Jew who was capable of defending themselves. And we've proven that. So the anxiety isn't there anymore. Now, it's true that October 7th did temporarily resurrect that anxiety because October 7th was such a, a devastating military failure. We failed to protect our own people who were massacred in our own borders. You know, bear in mind that 50 years ago, Israel sent commandos halfway across Africa to free 100 Israeli hostages at Entebbe Airport who were hijacked. And today, on October 7th, we couldn't save 1,200 of our fellow citizens within the borders of a sovereign Jewish state. So it's true that, that there is some reemergence of that old anxiety about whether the Jews are really, whether we've really internalized the lessons of self-defense. But what's playing out today in Gaza is that the army is fighting in a very professional way. And the morale is something that we haven't seen here for many, many years. Um, people have volunteered for their units even before they were called up. There's something like 150% response of reservist call-ups. Uh, the army doesn't know what to do with all the outpouring of volunteerism. And uh, and that, by the way, is being reflected throughout the society and on the home front as well. Something like 50% of Israelis since October 7th have been involved in some form of volunteerism. Now, that's I, I don't know of another society that that's that's capable of that level of commitment. And so something very profound is happening here. And we are really rebuilding Israeli society. In the last year, many of us felt that it was coming apart. And, and certainly this government did all it could to undermine the solidarity among Israelis. Mm -hmm. But what happened after October 7th was there was this grassroots response. And we didn't wait for the government. We mobilized ourselves. And that's the story of Israel post-October 7th. Do you think, Yossi, that there's a continuity between the kind of democratic political upheavals before October 7th, the incredible kind of civic energy that was released in response to Netanyahu's so-called judicial reforms, and then this kind of outpouring of national unity and purpose and spirit that's then happened 
in the last two months? It's a great insight because that's exactly what happened, Rudyard. You know, the protest movement instantly pivoted and became a, a conduit for volunteerism. So, for example, the government not only failed to, to prevent the October 7th massacre, but in the weeks immediately afterwards, failed to, to provide minimal social services for the survivors. Those services were provided by the democracy movement, which set up uh, these warehouses for people to donate food and clothes. And the protest movement provided psychological counseling for survivors. It didn't come from the government. And so what that really tells us is, is first of all, what an incompetent, what a disastrous government we have, and what an extraordinary civil society we have. And uh, the, there was a joke going around uh, saying, when uh, when can we start paying taxes to the protest movement? You know, because, because it really functioned uh, in those critical days after the massacre as a surrogate government. Yeah, great insights. Let's shift to having you help us understand a little bit more the Israeli perspective on um, the aims of this war. What is trying to be accomplished. And I particularly want to, I want to start, Yossi, with something that I think many people here in Canada and elsewhere either don't understand or struggle to understand, which is this, this idea of restoring credible deterrence. That what happened, as you said, on October 7th was a profound kind of failure of security. And it was an event that reaches in its impact deep into the kind of traumas of the Jewish people, and that one of the aims of this war is to ensure that the other bad actors in the neighborhood in which Israel lives understand that replicating the type of attack that Hamas unfortunately was able to perpetrate isn't likely to be successful, won't be successful, and will be met with a response that will create deterrence will create a ability for Israel to prevent its opponents from launching these attacks because they know that the consequences that will befall them, as in the case of Hamas, hopefully, will be catastrophic. Can you explain that argument to us? About 15 years ago, the head of Hezbollah, the terrorist group that sits on our northern border in Lebanon, made a speech about the destruction of Israel, in, in, in envisioning the destruction of Israel. And he used a metaphor which has haunted many of us in Israel ever since. He compared Israel to a spider web. And he said that just as a spider web appears to be impenetrable from the outside, when you swipe it, it disintegrates. And he said, that's Israel. What happened to us on October 7th was that we fulfilled Nasrallah's metaphor. We became a spider web. And that has devastating consequences for our long-term ability to survive in one of the most dangerous regions in the world. We are the only non-Arab, non-Muslim state for thousands of kilometers around. And if we do not succeed in projecting a credible military deterrence, 
we will gradually decline and we will be inviting, as you said, more and more acts of aggression. If Israel allows the perception of October 7th to remain in the Middle East, if we allow Hamas, which was the weakest of our enemies, and it delivered the most powerful blow that Israel ever received in 75 years of its history, if we allow that perception to remain, then our credibility is shattered. If we allow the genocidal regime that did that massacre to remain on our borders, then October 7th will be the last word. No matter what happens day to day in the coming days in Gaza, that will be the last word. That will be the lingering impression. Hamas will be able to legitimately claim victory. Now, it's really important to, to understand what is happening regionally, because in the West, the perception of this conflict is that it's Israel against the Palestinians. Israelis look at this conflict with a kind of a split screen in our heads. One side of the screen is Israel and the Palestinians, and there we are Goliath and the Palestinians are David. But on the other side of the screen, it's Israel and the region. And there, the balance of power looks very different, and Israel is acutely vulnerable. And so what's, we are not just fighting Hamas. We are fighting Hamas as a proxy of the Iranian alliance, which includes Hezbollah, Syria, Yemen, Iran. And the outcome of this war is going to have very immediate consequences for the balance of power between Israel and the Iranian axis. Mm -hmm. So well said. And I it's important for people really to reflect on Yossi's words here that this, this is a, a war of necessity, not born of, you know, vengeance or, you know, some desire simply to, to write a scorecard. It really is about Israel's credible deterrence, its ability to stop before Hezbollah or some other Iranian proxy, you know, decides to test the spider web you know, theory once again. Just to take this a little bit further with you, Yossi, explain to us what you see as like the pernicious effects on Israeli democracy if Hamas is not removed as a threat, uh, if it is not truly degraded as a military and political force. Could democracy in Israel survive in that, in that scenario? It's a really interesting question, and I, I haven't thought about it until this moment. But if Hamas prevails, and you have to understand that in the context of this war, Hamas's survival means that it will prevail. It will win simply by surviving, which is why a ceasefire is so lethal for Israel. And if Hamas prevails, the consequences for Israeli democracy, I think, will be severe because it will push more and more people to the far right. They're going, they're, they'll, they'll conclude that Netanyahu was too weak and we need an authentic right. We need a right with backbone. 
And once you start getting into those waters, it's very dangerous. And the far right is rising in the polls, not dramatically, fortunately, so far. Uh, but inevitably, the far right will rise because, especially in its appeal to young people, we're seeing it happen all over Europe. And for this generation of Israelis, this younger generation, October 7th is the formative event of their lives, of their lives as Israelis. This is going to determine how they look at their country, how they look at their neighbors, how they look at the world. And if we don't come out of this war victorious, it will have a devastating impact on younger Israelis. And the far right is waiting to reap that discontent. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Yossi, it would do to just Israeli citizens' sense of the social contract? I mean, one of the core tenets of any social contract, especially in a democracy, is that you know the state is there to protect, to create the security that allows uh, citizens to exercise their democratic rights. And that in the absence of security, in a state of insecurity, a state of anxiety, where Israeli citizens are thinking, maybe Hamas can come back, maybe they can rebuild. Iran will certainly spend time trying to rearm them. What does that do to the very idea of democracy, which was the subject of such you know fierce debate in Israel over the last 12 months that was already showing arguably some vulnerabilities vis-a-vis anti-democratic arguments. You know, October 7th was a profound violation of the social contract between Israeli citizens and the state. The people who were massacred on the Gaza border were some of this country's greatest idealists. They moved to kibbutzim, to these communal agricultural communities uh, on the border, uh, be, in part because this was a national, they saw this as a national responsibility. Somebody had to live on the Gaza border. Somebody had to bear that. Brought, we can't all live clustered around Tel Aviv. We can't be in a, in a giant Tel Aviv ghetto. And so they moved there, many of them, for idealistic reasons. When the army didn't show up for long hours on October 7th and left them to their fate, something basic in the trust of all of us in how this country is governed broke. And the truth is that that trust had already been broken to some extent in the years leading up to October 7th, because the government didn't succeed in stopping Hamas from firing tens of thousands of rockets into the Gaza communities over the years. Now, most of those rockets uh, were, were primitive, certainly in those years. They didn't cause that much lethal damage. They created panic, and, and that was really the purpose of those rockets that they were weapons of terror. But the government often left the people there to their fate, and October 7th was the culmination of that. And what, what the army is really trying to do penance for is that tremendous failure. And 
The army is now trying to prove that it is, in fact, capable of protecting our citizens. And so if the war ends inconclusively, we will be back to where we were on October 8th with a broken social contract. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just, for all of fellow democracies around the world, uh, the idea that you can have these associations that are the essence of democracy based on mutualism and trust uh, in the absence of physical security, I think is just prima facie wrong. And it suggests to me that this war that Israel fighting is fighting again is has a, is not just about Hamas and destroying an urgent threat and restoring credible deterrence. It's in some ways a struggle for securing the premise, the foundations of Israeli democracy going forward. Let's shift Yossi to uh, some other, I think, issues that our North American Western listeners are are kind of struggling with. And the big one, as you know, is the so-called day after. What is the scenario if if Israel, in fact, is successful in removing Hamas as a political and military force? What does that moment, uh, that shift, that change look like? And particularly, what are your thoughts about where the prospects of a two-state solution stand uh, in the kind of stark dawn sunrise of that day after? Well, look, I think there are two great shadows hanging over this war, or maybe three shadows. From the Israeli perspective, the first is the, the fate of the remaining hostages in Hamas hands. The second is the growing number of civilian casualties in Gaza and the enormous suffering that this war is creating in, in this densely populated, underprotected area. And the third is, uh, is the day after. So to answer your question about the day after, I mean, what, I, what I'm hoping will happen, and, it's, and it is admittedly a, a long shot, is that the countries of the Abraham Accords, the Arab the five Arab countries that made peace with Israel, and I would include Saudi Arabia as well, which is hovering around the Abraham Accords. We need, together with Israel, we need to make Gaza, the rehabilitation of Gaza, a, a project of the peace agreement. And that could really be our first test case and I'm saying that I think it's a long shot because, frankly, as long as this government in Israel is in power, uh, there will be no political movement and uh, no concessions, no, no, no generosity. And if we're going to bring, if we're going to ask our countries to invest heavily in Gaza and perhaps even to send soldiers to help secure the area. There's going to need to be some willingness on Israel's part to make some gestures to the Palestinians. Now, you ask about a two-state solution. I think it's far too premature to think about resurrecting negotiations. The, the trust level is at the absolute lowest point it has ever been, certainly on the Israeli side, I imagine, on the Palestinian side as well. And 
it's frankly inconceivable. No one right now is talking about a two-state solution. What I, as somebody who does believe in the necessity for ending the occupation, the necessity for Israel, for, for Israel's future, I'm caught at the place where I, I've always been, but even more so now, which is on the one hand, I feel that a two-state solution is an existential necessity for Israel, and I feel it's an existential threat for Israel at the same time. What a two-state solution would do would risk importing Gaza and Hamas to the West Bank. The West Bank is Israel's most sensitive border. I'm looking, literally, I'm sitting here in my apartment in Jerusalem, and I'm looking out on the next hill, and that's the West Bank. I see the lights of a Palestinian village on the next hill, 2,000 meters from where I'm sitting. And so the West Bank isn't somewhere out there. And it's very hard, I think, for, for Canadians especially to imagine what it's like living in such geographical and intimacy with your enemies, literally on the next hill. And but that doesn't negate the the urgent need for Israel to gradually start extricating itself from the occupation. So I don't know how to square the moral imperative with the security imperative. And that's really Israel's dilemma. Uh, it's also Israel's dilemma in terms of civilian casualties. Uh, how do you square the 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 need to address the devastation in Gaza with the need to destroy Hamas? And you know, many of us in Israel use the analogy of uh, of ISIS, Hamas as ISIS, and looking at the American war against ISIS and the massive destruction of Mosul and Raqqa in the in the war against ISIS and and as a kind of a precedent and I believe that that's that that is true but it doesn't lessen the urgency of the of the need to address the humanitarian tragedy and again I don't know how do how do you defeat a terrorist regime that hides in schools, mosques, hospitals? And this war is about denying Hamas immunity. They can't play those games anymore. The consequences are terrible. And that is an, an expression of Israel's immediate dilemma in Gaza, but it's an expression of our much larger political dilemma in terms of, of a Palestinian state. Mm -hmm. Is it fair to say, Yossi, that, I mean, you mentioned Iran before, you know, one could see an argument where a separate Palestinian state or some enhanced Palestinian uh, entity is created in the West Bank, yet Iran is there. Iran will once again see an opportunity to Gazify, to Hamasify the the West Bank. Why? You know, they're already doing this with groups like Islamic Jihad um, in the West Bank, a growing Hamas presence there, public opinion polls. Give them what credence you want. Probably not a lot, but they do seem to show rising support for Hamas. 
in the West Bank. So I, I just, I wonder, Yossi, if the solution to all of this isn't, in a sense, in Tehran, that there is, there has to be not only potentially a change with the partners of the Abrahamic Accords, but some serious international pressure beyond what's been exercised to date to present Iran with a clear choice. Either it becomes uh, a regional player that exercises some minimum responsibility vis-a-vis the Palestinian people, Israel, and its other Arab uh, nations, or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, then there has to be a consequence for it greater simply than uh, a sanctions regime that to date has worked with mixed success. Look, that's, that's a crucial point because the root of, uh, of the ongoing war, it's not, not the root of the conflict, but the root of, of the violent expression of the conflict today is, uh, is Iran. And, and we're experiencing that on multiple fronts. Uh, Iran today controls five Arab countries, either directly uh, or by, as, as in Lebanon or, or, or by proxy. And so without neutralizing the Iranian threat, I don't believe that, that we could have real movement uh, on the Palestinian front. Uh, certainly not a, a solution. That doesn't preclude Israel working together with its Arab allies to try to figure out how do we gradually improve conditions? How do we gradually ease the occupation? And I think that that's, that's essential. And I, I, I believe that that has to begin the morning after this war. Again, we're not going to be able to do anything precipitously. We, we, we have to be um, careful every step of the way. We we have no margin for error. That's what October 7th proved. If we mm-hmm. lower our guard, the unthinkable can happen here mm-hmm. again and again. And so we're not going to endanger our security. But I believe that there are measures that we can take together with the Gulf states and the Saudis that can try to move us in a better direction. Final question, Yossi. It's a big one, but let's hear you on it. I mean, war- wars are often, you know, watersheds. We can think back through many of the big wars of the 20th century, and they become moments where nations pivot, where there are fundamental changes that, that unfold. If you were to think of Israel five years forward from now, what could some of those fundamental changes be for the Israeli nation? How would we see Israel if we met it as a you know the proverbial friend that we know it to be walking down the street? How might it look different to us five years from now? My sense is that Israel, the morning after the war, is going to take a hard look at this last year, which was the worst year in Israel's history, and ask itself a very hard question, which is how did we get to the point where we actually experienced two scenarios for the destruction of Israel? The first was over this last year, 
which was a kind of an internal disintegration where Israeli society was so deeply divided against itself that it was almost inconceivable that we would ever be able to come together again, which is why this moment is so precious, as hard as that sounds. For Israeli society, this is a moment of reconstruction. This is a moment of, of healing from the deep divisiveness of the last year. And so the first question we need to ask ourselves is, how did we allow ourselves to get to the point where we were nearly on the verge of a civil war here, which is one scenario for, for a kind of destruction? The second scenario happened on October 7th, which is an external assault. Israel in total chaos, our much vaunted army nowhere to be seen, citizens left on their own. That's another scenario, a very different scenario for Israel's destruction. That's, that's always been the nightmare vision of our enemies overrunning our borders. And we now know that that can happen and in fact did happen in microcosm. But nevertheless, we have these two scenarios, two nightmare scenarios. And I believe that what we're going to be doing in the next few years is, is trying to figure out how do we never find ourselves in those two situations again. And that first, that's what the army is doing now. And the army is in, is in an active state of, of rebuilding. And there will be tremendous turnovers, an entire generation of commanders are going to have to leave. There, there will be consequences here. Politically, the same thing will happen. This government will fall. There is no question about it. Netanyahu is finished. I've said that for the last four years, <laughs> but it's really, if, if he, God forbid, if he survives <laughs> this, then, uh, then he really is uh, Houdini, you know, the, the, uh, the great escape mm. artist. Uh, and I don't believe he is. But more deeply, because it's in, in the end, it's not about any one person or or even anyone, any government. It's about how is Israeli society deals with its deep divisions. We are a society with multiple fault lines, religious, secular, east-west, Arab-Israeli, Jewish-Israeli, left and right. Uh, the divisions that we're carrying here I think would challenge the intactness of societies far more powerful, far larger than us. And we are going to have to think of how do we navigate these differences in a better way than we did, uh, certainly over the last year. Well, Yossi, we did exactly what I hoped we would in this conversation, which is provide a, a North American audience with a kind of an authentic and informed view of how Israel and Israelis are thinking at this moment on so many of the kind of critical issues that are top of mind to all of us. So thank you so much for your wisdom and insights today. It's always a pleasure to talk and um, just thinking of you, thinking of all your fellow citizens there. Many of us here in Canada, you know, are strong supporters of Israel. And uh, we hope that uh, the coming weeks and months will see Israel through this difficult time to brighter hills, sunnier uplands uh, in the months and years to come. Well, very grateful to you for this conversation. And it always is a pleasure to be with you. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family and subscribe wherever you get your audio online. We also appreciate your ratings and reviews. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca. This episode was produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.